for three hours on Friday afternoon, this past Friday, I sat in the emergency room at the Piedmont Fayette Hospital in the waiting area. It was a vivid reminder of the frailty of our human condition. Sat there thanking God that I was in, as far as I know, reasonably good health, but so many aren't in such a condition. Of course, it doesn't take a hospital to make this point about our human weakness. It is the nature of our existence. We were brought into a world of pain, suffering, and death. You know that, don't you? You have stories that confirm it. I should have prayed for Jane Warlick. I'm going to pray for her now. I just remembered. We, pardon my memory lapse. I'm going to pray for her. Lord, I pray for Jane as she's lost her brother. Suddenly, in his early 50s, and she's grieving grieving. Lord, make her a strong, clear witness. Thank you, Lord. She's been such a faithful witness for so many years in in difficult circumstances. And may she be so now. She's traveled to be with her family. And Lord, I, I would pray for Jeff, my brother, who's miserable and struggling. But thank you for all the kindnesses there in the uh, emergency room at ICU. Pray for his healing. Lord, as I, as I pause to pray here, I think there probably, I know there are others who've, who've personal chronic pain and illness and anxiety about certain physical conditions that maybe haven't even been completely diagnosed yet. God, we thank you for your presence with us and the hope that we have in Christ. In Christ's name, amen. But I do have a confession to make. There have been those moments, having experienced the grief of suffering and death up close, that I read the Gospels. You read the Gospels. And I notice the ease and instantaneous nature of Jesus' healing ministry. Matthew 4.24, because so often in my Bible reading, I mean, I know what time of the year it comes, and I know what to expect when I get to it. It comes to mind. It says, So his, Jesus' fame, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. My confession, you ask. Well, I felt disappointment in reading such good news. Sound a bit contradictory. With even a hint of maybe am I being mocked here. There was, there was Jesus healing thousands of people, and yet miraculous healing, for the most part, has eluded 
my experience. Now, lest you think I'm a heretic or living a double life, I have been able to talk myself through this to the point of biblical and personal clarity, theological clarity. I know that the miracles of Jesus do not mock us, but instead push us to dream of what God will do about all pain, suffering, and death. The faith that was active to bring about the power of healings is the faith that is necessary for experience the presence of Christ now. In our chronic pain and in a, with our, our loved ones who die, and remain dead. Here's where Mark in 5 and 21 meet us. Let's take just a moment or two to get the setting. It's important. We're obviously well into the book of Mark at this point. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has been giving, it's about a, his public ministry has already undergone about a year. And he has demonstrated boldly and clearly that his redemptive dominion work is forecast, is previewed, anticipated in his power over nature, stilling storms. And meeting demoniacs who were in a rage and dangerous. And he just brings them to ease and casts out the demons and runs them, puts them into pigs who hurl themselves by the hundreds down into the Sea of Galilee. So we now are on a scene here, actually two of them in Mark, where we have some hopeless situations. And what you will notice about this, I hope if you were listening carefully and look at the passage, that there is a well-designed literary technique that's used here to lift our anticipation. Yes, yes. What's going to happen? And you saw the flow. In the first case, we have Jesus, and he's in the area of Capernaum there on the north and western shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm not sure if there's, Matt, excuse me. Yeah, let's go to the next one because there's the picture of that. Uh, yes, that's what I want you to be looking at while I'm saying this. Right up in this area is the plain of Gennesaret and the sea of, of the city of Capernaum. And Jesus has just come back from the eastern side of the sea and has come over here to Capernaum. And... Wouldn't you know it, that wherever he went, he was just besieged with these crowds, just pressing in, pressing in upon him. Now, not a crowd like maybe a mall, but I mean more dense. Have you ever been pressed into a crowd and everybody's anxious to get into a ball game and they're shoulder to shoulder? That tightness and their people are pursuing, hoping. So here he is. 
And he's in the area, and this leader of the synagogue, Jairus, comes to him. He says, my daughter, 12 years of age, she's dying. Now, when you read Matthew's account, you'll find that Matthew jumps in this account after the death of Jairus' daughter. This account is found in, in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew has the shortest account of it. Matthew's like only 167 words. Mark, he's just over the top with this, about 320-something words to describe this. But back to this literary device that he uses, it's kind of a literary sandwich where we start out, and here's Jairus, and his daughter is terminally ill. She could die at any moment. Jesus then follows Jairus to go to where she is. But then something happens. A woman in the crowd who has this gynecological issue that's just stalked her, bothered her, made her life miserable for 12 years. And she appears. And Jesus gives attention to her. And it must have been a bit, must have given Jairus a bit some moments of nervousness. How would you feel? (laughs) This is the anticipation of it all. You've just called 911 and the EMTs have come and you are in the ambulance with your loved one and you're going to get the necessary attention that can't be given. It's, it's, it's a life-threatening situation. And the ambulance driver has the occasion to see an old friend in the car next to them at a red light for which they had to stop and say, could you tell me something? My arthritis is killing me. Do you have any quick remedy here? And so he, well, pull over here. And, Wait a minute. <laughs> what? So Jesus pauses, goes to this response to this woman. We'll come back to it. And then we find the story coming back again to the young girl. And by the time that Jesus is, is, uh, gets there, she's dead. So you, you have this, and it's by design to give us, get us stirred up with this. And as is true for all the miracles of Christ, you know, there are 30, what, 34, 35 recorded in the Gospels. That's not really many, is it? Considering that Jesus healed maybe thousands. Who knows? Maybe 10, 20,000 or more. We have 35 in the Gospels. It's as if the Spirit of God is telling us, yes, the miracles of Christ do serve a very important function in the plan of God, but don't let them distract you from who he was and why he came. Well, back to this, these two miracles. There's compassion, and as I was about to say, they authenticate Christ. These are his credentials. He's Israel's Messiah. This is anticipated. The servant songs in Isaiah and other prophecies, we should have known this. The Messiah would come and do these things. But there is also, in this picture, this faith response. Certainly, Jairus is anticipating that he can do something, Jesus can do something. And this woman, oh, 
you'd better believe that she believes that Jesus can help her. Now, I want to present to you what I see as three truths that emerge from this, these two accounts. Let's look at them. The first is this. I would caption this story with, I'm going to give it three captions, these two encounters. The first of which is that I think it's as plain as can be that Jesus is our only hope in the presence of death and despair. Why were these people gathered around him? He's their only hope. And you know how it is in life with pain and suffering, don't you? They have a way of getting our attention. Now, the bright side of it is, is that pain can be very useful in drawing us, pushing us to crowd to God for help. I would say to some degree that's true in most situations I encounter in hospitals and phone calls and just connections that there is at least some godness. I need help. True, there may be some real mixed emotions like, you know, foxhole praying, that kind of thing. But still, desperation is something that... uh, doesn't come really quickly to us, though. We have to get put into extreme circumstances. We begin to feel desperate. But in this passage, we've got two desperate people, and we can learn something from them. This man's daughter was in critical condition, and she was in such critical condition, she died. And here's this woman who had this incurable condition, um, well, you know what it says, that she'd spent all her money on physicians. I think some of you may can identify with that. And you thank God for insurance. But here she is at the end of her rope. I think it might be interesting to help you to understand this woman's plight uh, from several angles, one of which is that there were treatments that were recommended for people in these um, physical, well, what seemed on the surface to be just impossible situation. Here, let me give you a few of the remedies, and you may come away being a little bit more thankful for the Piedmont Fayette Emergency Room. Uh, for example, in the Talmud, one remedy for such is this woman, early corn, which had been taken from the droppings of a white she-donkey. How you like that one? There are more. Say, I don't, that doesn't interest me. What about this one? Here's one rabbinic prescription. For a woman with a persistent hemorrhage, it was advised that she would set, uh, set her in a place where two paths cross and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand and let somebody come behind and frighten her and say, Arise from your hemorrhage! I guess the idea is to just get it scared out of you. But here's another one. All right, you don't like those. You're opting for your best medicine here. Another remedy consisted of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. 
still another prescription was to carry the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain kind of cloth. You know, Dr. Luke, in his account of this, he just says in so many words, she's incurable. (laughs) And she was. But back to the pain, the pain issue and the desperation, and Jesus is one's only hope. That pain comes to us through many different doors. It can come through the pain of our children. Oh my, that one gets you. Been there? You a year ago. We were just talking about that. I was talking with you. A year ago it was Katie. But she was how she was diagnosed with this tumor. And within a four day period it just in surgery on Memorial Day a year ago. But it's gut wrenching to watch your son, your daughter, struggle with their pain. And you feel impotent. They're lying there with a wild, burning fever, crying in pain in the emergency room. Or it can be other kinds of pain. It can come through our own bodily weaknesses. You got one this morning? All right, young people, you're temporarily exempted, I guess, from this. You're full of yourself. And leap over tall buildings, can't you? Well, well, though... There are times when we become painfully aware of our own mortality. And like this woman who has had this loss of blood, been the victim of any number of physicians. But you know what stands out? One of the things that stands out here, there, there are two things here in this first movement, is first of all, the interruption that occurs, which... Uh, I find that it brings up something in, it, it, it gives me a, a, a useful mirror into myself. How easily the tyranny of the urgent can take over. I read, a friend put it this way, that the urgent is very often the great enemy of the important. Jesus always had time for people. And he Never treats people as an interruption. Ooh. (laughs) Makes me want to crawl up in a fetal position. Jesus, oh, it's beautiful to watch Jesus as he moves and talks and teaches and goes through crowds and is in all kinds of circumstances. And the more you are awash in the Gospels, the more you have to be enthralled And maybe, as I've suggested, uh, that let your imagination run wild, what it would have been like to have been with Jesus on a 24-7 basis, to watch him uh, respond to people, to look at situations that through one's own eye, they looked impossible, but through his eyes, he was completely composed and in control of all the circumstances, even this terminal illness, it didn't rattle him. He's not in a panic. He said, didn't say to this lady, I could see myself. Hey, uh, I'll get back with you. Hey, Peter, could you take her number? We'll get back with her in just a little bit. Do you have a cell phone? I'm on, I've got to be somewhere. I don't have time. But Jesus doesn't respond this way. Oh, God, give us the grace 
to be more like. So, you know, Mark, I started to say the word servant. Yeah, that's the Mark 10, 45. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the theme of the gospel of Mark. Servant, servant, capital S. This is the way servants live. Time for people. But another issue that comes up here in addition is this, that it's a question I have for you. What is it taken in your life to make you aware of God and your need for him? Or perish the thought that maybe you aren't really all that keyed up about your need for God. Life is, hey, things are good. You're healthy. Maybe you've got a lot of good things coming to you. Well, I will tell you this. Uh, Yes, I know prosperity has its disadvantages, and pain and suffering can have their disadvantages, but advantage in that it will wake us up to our condition, really. We live in mortal bodies and we, the sooner we are aware that we need, for, we need God in whole so often, our physical limitations and our aches and pains and hurts and death, it wakes us up to it. Has that happened yet in your life? And I don't tend, I don't want to look to, I'm patronizing youth. Uh, I just say that as a young person, Listen to me carefully here. You don't have to wait until you break a bone or get back an MRI that's kind of a scary thing to wake up. We all need God's provision in Christ in the new birth and eternal life, every one of us. But let's look at the second truth that emerges from this. Now you see it here that I would, I'll frame it this way, that Jesus is not limited by our feeble faith in the presence of death and despair. You notice this about the woman. Do you have some questions about the woman and what's going on here touching Jesus? Is it, you think, is it a little hocus pocus? Uh, is he, he's a magician, uh, that kind of thing. You know, faith can be mixed with false assumptions about Jesus. It's, it's, this is a little messy, more ways than one, this account where... This woman comes to Jesus. And she probably thought that there was some magical power that could be transferred from Jesus to her. I mean, why else would she have? You see the crowds pressing around him. She's, she, now, the fact that she's in the crowd uh, mixing with people, that's a pretty risky thing. I'll more about this later. And this whole matter of, of uh, ceremonial uncleanness. But anyway, so she touches him. Well, you, you rem- I like the way Roger accentuated that fact. The disciples said, you got all these people pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Well, here's this woman who thought this. But watch, she thought that there could have been some magical power, that it could have been transferred to her, and she'd be all better. And, but Jesus is... And this is one of those tender, tender uh, little pictures in this whole passage about Jesus. How he is with people. And that feeble faith is better than no faith. And he responds to this. 
I'm reminded of Matthew 12, 20. Have you ever thought of it this way? Here's, I'll read it to you. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. That's Matthew 12, 20. It's just this Jesus is gentle with people. He is... Um, this imperfect knowledge which this woman has doesn't keep God from working. You can not be thankful for that, can't we? <laughs> can't we? That we've, we've, how if you begin to reminisce over your life and walk with God and you think of some really, some, really some spooky thoughts that you had and you thought they were truth. And, you know, you may have read it in a book or you just kind of made it up or some aunt or uncle said it and you just kind of held on to it and you thought it was biblical truth and you were, and you wove it into your theology so easily and then you find out somewhere along the line the lights come on and you say, ooh, I was stupid. Um, and yet God has been faithful to bring us along, keep teaching us the next thing and showing himself to us in kindness Maybe this was what was involved with uh, Peter's shadow and Paul's sweat rags. Remember that in the, in the book of Acts? <laughs> that people thought, well, if I just get over here in the shadow, I'll be all better. And uh, give me one of those, and those, you know, he wipes his, Paul is working in the, in the saddle shop, and he wipes the sweat off and throws the rag down. And people say, wow, if I could get one of those, <laughs> a dirty handkerchief. <laughs> well, all right, but... Also, you will notice in this, and I'm going to pick up from something else here in the story. I mean, I'm, I'm taking both stories at the same time in, in some ways. That you notice how faith may be attacked by skeptical people. You see that in this picture as well. Then, now, I'm jumping on over to Jairus' daughter. And I, I, when he arrives at her home, after he's, he's healed this woman, I'm, I'm coming, I've forgotten her. I'm going to come back to her. But when he, he gets to Jairus, the home of Jairus, that arrangements for the, were already in progress for the funeral. And let me tell you, they buried people right away. None of this two, three days sort of thing. And it was right away. And there are the flute players, you know, even the poorest of people would pay to hire a couple of flute players and have they have these minstrels and professional mourners and they would come and listen they would they would give you a funeral you wouldn't forget and one of the words that's used to describe this in chapter five is that um, it says loudly weeping and wailing and the greek word there is alalazo has a little phonetic uh, resemblance to the way you hear this expression of emotion. You ever heard in funerals or uh, I've, heard, I've heard this, la, 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 that, that sound, uh, a connection. It's just imagine that room, though. Here's the 12-year-old girl. She's dead. The flute players, the mourners, they're going at it. It's a, it's commotion. It's wild. It's crazy. Jesus comes into the room, and he says, she's not dead. She's asleep. <laughs> Do you hear what he said? Has he lost it? 
She's dead. We know death when we see it. We know what her condition was. They were skeptical, and they, they laughed at him. You know, I'm reminded of here, it's a lot like it. You thought of it, didn't you? When Mary and Martha, and they sent word that Lazarus was sick. And what does Jesus do? He's in no hurry. And Lazarus dies. And then his sister, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Whoa, you're not getting it. These are very instructive episodes. Here is the Savior who is undaunted by death. That's why he says she's asleep. For it's just as easy as we think of waking someone up. I mean, as difficult as it may be for you with an alarm clock or somebody else. But still, I mean, you're here. (laughs) We wake up. And so with Jesus, wake up. To death he does that. Death? Try that the next funeral you go to. They'll usher you out to somewhere. And she, she's just, with Jesus, she's raised. And so Jesus is undaunted by it. And he comes into this hopeless situation. He's laughed at, though he gets everyone out of the room. How to hear and leave seven people, Peter, James, John, Jesus, his mother and father. So when the little girl comes up, oh, aren't you glad? What a merciful act on his part that when she, when she opens her eyes, what would you want? Who would you want to be there? You're in the emergency room and you've been pronounced dead. And you, but then you open your eyes and there's mama and, mama and daddy. And it's, it's a fairly quiet environment. It's a touch of mercy there, kindness. And so I'm, I'm just, while I'm, while I'm with that, I, lest I forget it, there's a couple of, three of these touches of mercy. And, well, one is, of course, seeing that the room to which the little girl is resuscitated, she wasn't resurrected, she didn't get a resurrection body, but she's brought back from death. So Jesus wants her to come back in a comfortable environment. Then a little later on it says, could you give her something to eat? I mean, and she walks around. What else would a a middle schooler would be interested? I need to move and I need to eat. (laughs) And Jesus is aware of this. I love that touch. I love to watch these little touches of Jesus with people. You can go right by them. You think, we might think, I've done that. Oh, Really? I think of the times that I go by things, then I think, oh, what? Uh, anyway. So here's Jesus. But, you know, this is good, too. I like the affectionate way he refers to her. You, you see that, Talitha kum. The word Talitha, in the Aramaic, it's a word which means lamb for youth. It's a little term of endearment. Actually, Beth's mother probably had the best paraphrase of this because she had it's this part of the family vocabulary. When she was addressing the little ones, she would call them lambkin, <laughs> lambkin. I, it's almost like that when Jesus says lambkin talithakum, and those words come to it. That's what she hears. First word she hears coming out of death. It's just these tender touches of the Lord are just beautiful to watch. And it, it is, 
It makes you love Jesus more and say, Lord, I want to be like that more than I am. And so, all right, but let's, let's look at this then. Now, I want to get back to something that I almost left unfinished. Can you stay with me jumping back and forth like this? I know it's a, hey, they do it in movies. You can do it. You know, plots. You get this plot going and then you get the other plot and come back. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, that sort of thing. So, So here's this woman in this desperate situation. And her desperation is mixed with some really bad theology. And yet Jesus honors the measure of faith that she has. I like that. And, but it does bring up a question that I only can give a sideward glance to. It's, a, it's another sermon. And that is, it, it does bring the question up with regard to people who go to, quote, unquote, these modern faith healers. I'm not equating Jesus with the modern faith healers, but I'm, my, my comparison is with people who are really desperate about their physical condition. If you've ever been to one of these meetings or just know of the culture that gravitates in around these uh, supposed faith healers, that they're people who've got some, they're desperate. They're hurting. They're look, this is their last chance. And... Could God ever accommodate someone's desperation and flawed beliefs? And if they have a sliver of faith and God can heal them, could he heal them? Yes. I'm I'm willing to say that he could, but that that doesn't lend credibility and a stamp of approval upon the bad theology and those who are out to make a buck and manipulating the circumstances. I'll leave it at that. All right, we've got to hurry on. That there is a third truth that emerges here, and it's this. That Jesus alone can turn death and despair into life and peace. Ah, here's what happens. Peace comes from the value of our faith. Not, oh, not, got to get the not hole there. Peace comes not from the value of our faith, but from the one in whom we place our faith. You get that? The one in whom we place our faith. And this woman was not healed because of some magical technique she used. She was not healed because her faith released some kind of divine energy. She was healed because of who Jesus was. And she had enough of that, enough of that, to make it, make it the occasion for her change, her miracle. He has the power to heal. And so, therefore, Jesus asked the question, who touched me? Well, it was a touch because it was a touch where she was... Yes, misguided, misguided thinking, but nevertheless, that Jesus was somebody who could, he, he was one who could help her. The, probably the tassels as his garment would have been, as a rabbi, he would have had fringes upon his cloak. And uh, I don't know what you think of, maybe a graduation gown and all the, you know, the stuff that the 
the uh, teachers wear and so professors touched it. And it was that that Jesus picked up on. And so she got her healing. Now, I would have to say this about the woman. She was talk about a desperate person and how Jesus turned her despair into life. You know, she went about life for all those years with this uh, hemorrhage, this bleeding problem. She was ceremonially uncleaned. Now, that in itself is worth uh, an extensive uh, time for thought. You see it in the Old Testament. You could be, you could be declared ceremonially unclean for what you ate, clothes you wore, touching a body, dead, dead body. And so you read those things, those accounts, ceremony unclean. Were these, was that a sin? No, that's not the point. The point was this. <clears throat> I have to be brief. I know I'm leaving out some things, but I think this is the key core issue. That disease and things that were consequences of the fall, that, here, let me back up. Where did God live? He had an address in Israel. It was the tabernacle and the temple. God, where's God live? Right down there at uh, 301 Jerusalem Avenue. I mean, you'd think somebody would say that. They'd be. But God chose to manifest his special presence in Israel. Coming there, coming there to worship him was very, it was very important. The protocol, the way you approached him, you had to be. So there were these, the, the uncleanness kept you from doing that. You had to be declared ceremonially clean. This woman had lived ceremonially unclean for these years, and now she's going to be suddenly cleansed. (laughs) She's going to be, socially, she's going to be able to move around without condemnation. It's just, it's a beautiful picture. Now, one other thing here, that notice back to Jairus' daughter. That life comes to the terminally ill through the power of Jesus. Do you get that? I will say I will say two things here. I'm talking about terminal illness. I'm talking about the importance of regeneration in the valley of the shadow of death. Regeneration is the most critical issue in dealing with terminal illness. I think that in this passage, first of all, the woman said, go in peace, that so very often forgiveness of sin in eternal life was in this mix of coming to Jesus and receive healing. Not in every case, but in some cases. I know this. He says, he says so in one place. He came to. He performed a miracle to show the end of the power to forgive sins. <clears throat> I will say this. That those who are without Jesus Christ, unregenerate, you've never been born again. And terminal illness comes knocking. Oh, tenderly I wish to say this, but emphatically. Oh, my dear friend, if you or you know someone who is outside Christ and the clock is ticking, time's running out, the most important thing they need to hear know is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ask God to give you wisdom. I know I've walked in some very delicate hospital situations and talks and conversations and you don't want to be, but you don't, don't want to bypass their pain and suffering to just say, bah! now listen to me. But, oh, God, give me wisdom. This, they need to hear the gospel. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, terminal illness, presence of Christ upon death, 
presence of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the comfort that you give. And Lord, I know. Can I, can I come back around full circle? I've gone around the barn. Remember I said this at first? That I read these miracles and I have loved ones and friends as you do who they don't get better. They get worse. They die. And when they die, they stay dead. Am I mocked? Oh, no. Not on your life. That what I have in this hope, every, I'll think of it this way. That the crosses that mark the graves of millions of believers in one form or another are all promises, promises of a coming restoration when our faith will have made us well forever. Yes. I embrace that. I accept that. You know, I, I hope you don't think I'm a heretic when I flinch at Matthew 4. <laughs> And then Jesus just does these things, and I say, Lord, I've said this, Lord, Lord, I saw how easy you did this, and I'm praying for so-and-so, and they, oh, they're hurting. Jesus, Jesus. But I know enough about him and what he has revealed about himself, and I think that's why these delays for this Jairus' daughter and for Lazarus, it tells us what we need to know about him. He is ruler over all death and will make it turn for our restoration forever. Dream, hope on, hope on, and lay hold of that. And there's that time coming. It will never be an issue. And there will be all pain and tears and sorrow and death will be banished forever. I live by that. I count on that. I hope in Christ. Are you? Let's pray. Oh, our God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the hope that's in Christ. For wellness, but Lord, most of all, for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Lord, and that you told this lady, this lady, hemorrhaging as she was, Go in peace. Putting no conditions upon her but, to, but faith alone. Faith alone. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. And Lord, we give you thanks and praise for these who are now going to go into the baptismal waters and testify that in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Faith in him, going into the water, coming out, witnesses to what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for these who bear public witness to that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.